Today, Girls on Film focuses on two brilliant and very different films. I speak to the team behind the new documentary, Tish, and the production designer and set decorator of Barbie. Here's Barbie's set decorator, Katie Spencer. Margot's so good. When she was now in the acting stage, she'd still go and look at the sets being built purely for the joy of it. And so when you're in a film and you're in it the whole time and you're producing it, mm. but she wanted to know. And she's she's really bright. Yeah. She's really smart as well. You know, it was interesting having two smart women yeah. at the top. You just felt that it was a conversation you knew. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith, and today we're celebrating the new release, Tish. I'm joined by producer Jen Corcoran and director Paul Soong to tell us about their new feature documentary. Opening in cinemas in the UK and Ireland on the 17th of November 2023, Tish is a moving tribute to British social documentary and activist photographer Tish Murtha. It features contributions from her family and, most prominently, her daughter, Ella. She wanted a photograph to make people's lives better. Well, I like her work, but a lot of it's centred around members of her family. People with cameras around here know me, people from the DSS. She couldn't compromise. She had to be a photographer. Well, Paul and Jen, welcome to Girls on Film. Hi, thanks for having us. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I met you both at a screening of Tish, and as you know, I'm a huge fan of the film, so I'm so happy to be chatting to you about this. It feels like a really important watch um, for our listeners to know more about. Um, let me start with you, Paul. How did you first meet Jen and start working together on this project? Ella and I had been talking about making a film, and we needed a producer. And so Jen was recommended to us, and she was the first and only person that we met to talk about it. And I think it was really important that, as well as, you know, Ella's from the Northeast, but it was very important, you know, making a film about Tish Murtha, that the core creative team was um, majority female. And I also think it was vital for us that, you know, as well as having Jen Corcoran as our producer, we had um, a woman called Holly Galloway as our cinematographer. And both Holly, Jen and Ella are all working class women from the Northeast. And so as a man, you have to ask yourself, you know, what's your right to tell a story about a woman and so for me having somebody like Jen who had that connection to the area um, was vital to make this film really. Well I think you've just exhibited one of the reasons that you, we invited you as we rarely have men on girls on film but you feel like a true ally in, with that attitude and also in the subjects that, that you choose but we'll come back more to that later. Jen tell me what when you were approached what made you want to work about this project? Well, yeah, as Paul mentioned, he and Ella got in touch with me. And at the time, um, I just moved back to the northeast from London uh, and I was setting up my company, Freya Films. Um, and one of the things that I'd wanted to do or with the projects that I was looking for was to tell new narratives from the northeast or try to correct some of the perception that you get 
um, in portrayals of regional um, and often working class communities. And then I knew Tish's work. Um, and so when they approached me, I was just thought, oh, fantastic. You know, this is so exciting. Um, it felt very serendipitous. And then um, we we connected on Zoom and I think the, the connection was there straight away. Paul, what would you say your, your kind of directing style is? I'm getting the impression that it's very collaborative and that you work very closely with everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't believe in auteur theory. I, I remember um, studying it and thinking, oh, I mean, it seems a bit... Um, Selfish. I mean, as directors, we have to have a creative vision and we have to be able to articulate that. But uh, particularly on documentary, you know, the producer, the participant, the cinematographer, the editor, particularly the editor, just as important as the director. I mean, during the edit, the editor becomes, I think, um, sometimes more important than the director. I mean, my style of directing is collaborative and it is to, you know, go with the best idea. And sometimes that isn't my idea. And I don't sit next to the editor throughout the edit. I couldn't think of anything worse. It'd drive them crazy. So for me, it's important that we, you know, we have lots of conversations about what we're going to do as a team and we have a structure for the film. And we, you know, we, we do structure these things like you would um, a scripted project. So, you know, you would have um, an inciting incident. You would have a midpoint. You would have a climax. So you would know all of these things. But once it's kind of been shot and we've worked out what the story is, it's like, a baby and you hand it to the editor and you, you check in on it once a week and you you're there and you're available but it becomes very much the editors for a while and Jen and I and Ella would you know come and visit and and, and be watching things probably most days but I do like to work collaboratively I think you get better results and it's not to diminish people that are auteurs that are out there doing that it's just not how I want to work. Well you mentioned Ella and I want to come back to her more in a minute because she is of course Tish's daughter but first of all um from either of you, I'd like to know what you really loved about Tish's work and life story that made you feel, in addition to what you've said, Jen, Jen about perceptions, um, that made you feel that this story should be told and in the way that you've told it. I have kind of so many um, thoughts about this that like articulating them and getting them into the right order is is something we can, we can do together now. Um, I think with Tish, yes, yeah, she's a woman from, from a working class background. She's incredibly intelligent, incredibly perceptive. Um, and she wanted to use her camera um, as a tool for social change. Um, so she was seeing what was around her. She was taking pictures of it. And mostly it's her community, it's her, it's her family and friends. Um, uh, but she wants to, it, it's, it's art as activism, basically. She, she, she was taking these pictures and then she was also a brilliant writer. So she wrote incredible essays um, to try and draw attention to, to what was happening and try to affect change. And I hadn't realized at the beginning of the project, maybe, but what became clear to me through the process of making the film is that that was just something that was incredibly important to me as well. So that's what I would want to do. Because sometimes, you know, when you see things that are happening in the world, um, filmmaking can feel quite frivolous. And you think, here I am, you know, making films and, and going to festivals and should I be doing this? You know, is there something more I should be doing? Um, and then that's what I learned from Tish um, and also from Paul and Ella as well, um, that we, we could be doing something similar to Tish with the film. 
um, we try to show not only to tell her story in, in the biographical sense, but to um, show the, the legacy um, of, of how working class communities in, in Britain have been um, failed, perhaps by successive governments. Um, that was the story we wanted to tell. Um, and I think that is the most powerful thing about uh, what what drew me to, to Tish. That's what she wanted from her work too. What is becoming clear to the generation now approaching maturity is that our society has no solutions for their problems. Fox is trying to break everybody. We missed the whole generation. She was committed to working class struggle, which is continuous and never ending. What I really learned from Tish and through you know, speaking to Ella and find out more about her mum was her practice as a documentarian, that she would explain things. You know, she wasn't, you know, on a poverty safari. These were literally her brothers and sisters that she was, you know, taking pictures of. And she was one of them. She was one of the kids, as, as Eileen, her sister, says in the film. And so she was inclusive. You know, she would explain what she was doing, why she was doing it, and she would give them a copy of the picture. And that, you know, strikes me as just being, you know, on one hand, you know, it's very ethical, but it's also, it demonstrates her empathy that she wanted people to know that their lives mattered and that they weren't just purely there to be, you know, like animals in a zoo being observed. And I think a lot of documentary photographers had that approach that they would, you know, tip up in these, you know, communities, sometimes you know, in the north of England, coming from London, they would get their pictures and then they would just leave. And, you know, the, the people that in those photographs sometimes wouldn't even know that they were being filmed. And I think that, Consent is a really important part of documentary. So I guess what I got from Tish was just um, a sense of values in terms of it's, it's it's important what you make, but it's just as important how you make it. Yeah, it's really interesting that, yeah, you're talking about her documentary and still photography, but it is very related to what you are both doing as well. Um, and, and watching this, sort of going back to a little bit what Jen was saying, I just, you know, found this a really heartbreaking reflection on how great working class artists aren't always able to fulfil their full potential, perhaps particularly if they're women and perhaps particularly if they are mothers. Would either of you like to comment on that? I think that, you know, what Paul is saying about the um, responsibility that Tish felt to the people she was taking pictures of is the same responsibility that we feel as documentary filmmakers. I'm really preoccupied at the moment and concerned with um, how difficult it is currently for any artist, but particularly working class artists, to make film or any kind of creative media in our current economy. And if that's true, what are you missing? What do you lose? Um, you know, what is specific about a working class lens uh, or a working class female lens? Um, and for me, that is empathy. Um, it's a sense of authenticity, um, it's collaboration. And I think we, we saw that with Tisha's work when she went to London and she was working and documenting the nightlife in Soho. And she took everything that characterized her work when she was taking pictures just of her family and she took it to this other community in, in Soho. Um, and she's working in collaboration with the dancers and with participants in the nightlife there um, so that you you have a very authentic, um, empathetic portrayal of that community. And what else would she have gone on to do? People from the working class um, artists, people from the North, anyone, you, you don't have to only take pictures of your community. You shouldn't 
be restricted to to only documenting your community. Um, it's taking that lens and 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 applying it to something else. I would love to have seen what Tish would have done. Um, and so yeah, I find it heartbreaking that we are losing so many working class voices right now. I think for for me, um, finding on any film that you know I'm going to work on, I, I always have to find a personal connection with it and and establish you know what is my right to tell that story with the people I'm working with. And for me, um, like Ella, you know, I'm from a single parent working class family. Um, as as and I got to know each other, the thing that we kind of connected on was that you know to our mums we were you know we were the the apple of their eye. We were somebody people that they've sacrificed so much for in terms of you know my mum could have gone on and done this or done that but she had to look after me and she sacrificed a hell of a lot and there was this phrase that you know Ella used that my mum used to say and it was the phrase me and you against the world and it was when I look at pictures of Ella with Tish and you just see the love in Tish's eyes and you know Ella was um, a very bright child very precocious child and I think I was a bit too as well but I what I can kind of connect with is just that relationship that the two of them had and knowing that you know you are everything to your parent and that when you look back on what they've sacrificed for you you know it's um I think there was with Ella there was a little bit of um, a sense of responsibility and she finds out in the film that you know she wasn't responsible for her mum you know not being more successful but that kind of I suppose that twinge of guilt doesn't ever really leave you so I think it's what Ella's done to establish Tisha's legacy and I guess what I'm trying to do as a filmmaker is you know, I suppose make my mum proud, make her sort of, um, you know, a, a sacrifice for not to make it too dramatic, worthwhile, really. Because when I make something, I know how proud she is of me. And it kind of, you know, making this film and also making the polystyrene film, I've kind of realised that they're films, from my perspective, that are about, I guess, my relationship with my mum in a way, but told to other people. I was going to ask you about polystyrene, which we also loved and covered on Girls on Film. Um, and I think you've sort of half answered it, but I'm curious to know if that if you'd like to add anything about why you've worked on two films where it is very much um, you're very much involving the daughter and she's on camera and she's talking about her relationship with her mother. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, for me as an audience member, I found that very powerful and very intimate. Was that intimacy something that that you you really sort of felt as you were filming? Yeah, definitely. Um, both with Celeste and Ella, there. I don't think there are two people better placed to tell those stories than, than those two and it's not as if they're just telling you know the story of polystyrene and Tish Murtha they're also talking about their experience with it, the complexities of the relationship what their impact was on their mother's lives and you know both films in, in some ways are their love letters to their parents but they're also I think you know explorations of what was tough what was difficult you know they're not you know, pure hagiographies where they're just saying, oh, my mum was brilliant, she was the best ever. They're also saying, yeah, well, you know, she could be difficult. She was, you know, had this about her that was sometimes a bit of a problem. But ultimately, more people need to know how brilliant these women were. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, your own relationship with your mother. And I think anyone watching this starts to think about their own relationship. So it does widen it out, even beyond the scope of a film about an artist or a specific person. I think it, it, it very much a lot to think about in terms of family relationships. High levels of unemployment have always been a hard and constant feature of life in the West End society. Has no solutions for them. My work depends on an investment of time, as it is by the government's extreme free market philosophy. The demon snapper. 
events and experiences in Chia fuse fantasies of your diverse community. I've been documenting the human effects of unemployment of which will be enormous. Young people already experiencing problems of the future is nevertheless clearly discerned. Dear Ella, I give you my heart. Jen, I wanted to ask you about Maxine Peake, who is just seemingly the perfect choice um, to do to do the voice in this film. Um, what what's did you pursue her initially, uh, or did she come to you? How did it work out? Yeah, no, we thought so as well. Um, she she is perfect. Um, she was the first and only um, person that came to mind. Um, we were having a, we're actually in the car um, driving back from a shoot, and we were having like a discussion about who we thought could do the narration and, and Paul had worked with Maxine previously and as soon as the name was mentioned it was just like yes has to be um the perception I think from uh maybe other people involved with the project is like well you know shouldn't you work with somebody from Newcastle um to to you know who, who maybe has come from that background but for us Maxine had it and it's to do with her spirit it's to do with her politics um everything that Maxine believes in and strives for um Tish would have respected and probably shared um and when Paul approached Maxine um her response was instant as well um she immediately understood what we were trying to do related to it um and she was just perfect and then fantastic to work with as well um just the yeah friendly and um uh, down to earth and um collaborative so again exactly in, in the spirit of us as filmmakers she's lovely isn't she yes we, we've we've had her on stage on on live episodes of girls on film and she's just amazing as you say so down to earth and just because we are a podcast i wanted you both actually if you wouldn't mind picking out one of tish's photographs that particularly stays in your mind and describing it and we'll put some on social media with your permission paul is there one that for you really encapsulates it yeah i mean I'm going to pick the first one I ever saw, um, which is um, kids jumping onto mattresses. So in that photo, when I first saw it, I was really captivated because it reminded me of something in my childhood. So I didn't grow up in Newcastle. I grew up in New Cross. And at the time, there were still abandoned buildings and derelict, you know, structures in New Cross, which there wouldn't be now because it's been heavily gentrified. But, you know, we would sort of explore these places. And I knew a couple of kids that would do that thing where they would jump out of like, you know, first floor onto these mattresses. And I was always too terrified or sensible, one of the two. But I just looked at it and it was an instantly recognizable image. And then the more I looked at it, it's 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 a, a very clever photograph because you've got all of the kids looking at Tish's brother, Glenn, who's jumping. And you've got Carl who's behind him, Tish's other brother. And then there's a, a, a boy holding a ventriloquist dummy and that's Mark. It's also Tish's brother. And then you've got all these other kids that are looking up at what's happening at the spectacle. And the only, the only, well, the only thing rather than person that's actually looking at the lens is the ventriloquist dummy. And so <laughs> it's a really, it's really clever that picture because like the dummies notice Tish, no one else has. And so, yeah, that's the one I always go back to. That is a brilliant one. And you've described it so perfectly. Thank you. Jen, what stands out for you? To pick a favourite um, of Tish's work, I, I simply could not. Um, and depending on what day it is, I'll give you a different answer. Um, I think today probably I'll talk about, um, it's a picture of uh, Tish's brother, Glenn, 
um, uh, on a wall in Elzick, and the, the picture is called Glen on the Wall. Um, so he's in the foreground and he's just leaning on the wall with his head in his hands, um, sort of gazing off into the distance. And then you can see um, Elzick in the background. Um, it's the most incredibly cinematic photograph. Um, it's, it's, it's so beautiful. Um, and we revisited Glen um, in that same spot. We found that wall. It, it sort of exists. There's a school built on that site now. Um, and so we, we, we did a bit of an interview with him there. We asked him, what were you thinking about? Uh, and he said, oh, well, I was, I was dreaming of my past and my future. Um, but then another time he might give you the answer and he, was, he would say, oh, I was thinking about what bet I was going to put on that day. And I think, you know, one thing that is special about Tisha's work is, yes, the connection she has with the people in the photographs because, you know, this is her brother. So you, you have that, that empathy, that intimacy, that connection. Um, but also, you know, the, the, the joy of, of childhood as well. Um, and then what is so poignant now um, about this photograph is that um, Glenn actually um, died very recently. Um, uh, and, you know, that this is a sort of an image and a, and a memory of that interview will um, stay with me forever, I think. You know, he's a, a very sweet man. Um, and you, you'll see sort of in the film kind of what the years have, have done to him. But um, yeah, he was he was incredible to meet, just the most generous um, guy. Uh, and it's a real, a real loss. Um, so yeah, Glenn on the Wall would be my pick. Obviously, our listeners can see her work in your fabulous film, um, but I believe that there are other opportunities for the, them to see her work. Is there an exhibition as well? Her work is um, on, uh, it's in the permanent collection at Tate Britain. Um, and then we have had, or Ella has had recently, some um, exhibitions in the Northeast. Um, so we had um, an exhibition of um, pictures from the Juvenile Jazz Bands series at the West End Women and Girls Centre in Elzick. Um, and then very recently as well, um, there's a new um, housing development in Elzick um, that a local school was asked to name. Um, and the kids did some research on their area and they found Tish's work um, and they, they decided to uh, name it Tish Murtha House, which is wonderful. Um, so you, you can see Tish's work there, but I think, you know, what more lasting legacy could you have um, than, you know, than to have a, a development named after you? Um, and we actually did a little bit of filming with those same kids as well. You see them right at the end of the film and they're from a local school. Um, and we spent a day just hanging out with them and they recreated some of Tisha's pictures. But yes, we are on general release from the 17th of November. I could direct people to the Modern Films website. That's where you'll find the best um, and most up-to-date listings. As well as uh, general release, we also have a Q&A tour that Paul, Ella and I will be um, hopefully coming to a city near you very soon. And this feels like the sort of film that's really important to support as much as you can on its opening weekend, tell your friends. You know, I, I took a friend to the screening that I came to and met you both at and I, everyone there, as you will remember, they couldn't stop asking questions. It was one of those Q&As where everyone was just so enthralled by the film and so fascinated by the story behind it. So I would encourage anyone to see this film and go to q and if you can. Um, and I've loved hearing from you both today as well. Is there anything either of you want to add, either in terms of the film, the journey in making it, or in what you hope that audiences are going to get out of it? It's, it's really difficult, as Jen was saying earlier, to, to make films and to make any art these days. And I think often, you know, we can be put off before we even try. Um, so I would, you know, encourage people, you know, to 
to not necessarily always wait for permission. And I know that it's difficult to make work when you haven't got money, but to try and find ways to make a version of something and, and to find allies because, you know, you only get as far as, you know, people are really willing to support the work that you do. So I think it's really important right now to, you know, if you have a story to tell, to just find a way of telling it. It might not be the way that you intend to tell it, you know, so that could mean that, you know, you might want to make a short film, but you haven't, you know, got the means to do that. So maybe you can document it in a photography project or something like that, you know, just hang in there. Don't give up. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what people could get out of it, I think um, it's this idea of um, art as activism. Um, Tish did, you know, coming from the background she, she had, you know, she got where she did through a sheer force of will, um, which I just find completely inspiring. And I think art does have the potential to shift uh, opinion. And yeah, as I said earlier, I think that is what drove me as well. Um, and I think, you know, if you have something burning inside you, don't don't wait. And also, you know, I never thought I could be a filmmaker. Um, I didn't think that was something that was available to me. It took me a long time to make my way into film production. Turn off that voice in your head that says you can't do it um, uh, and, and get started. That's wonderful advice. Thank you. I know we have a lot of, of aspiring filmmakers and artists that listen, and I'm sure they'll find that really encouraging. And I know that they're going to love the film. Thank you both so much for joining us to talk about Tish. She was true to herself and she was true to the medium. You don't meet many people like Tish. If you want to photograph the tribe, you've got to be part of the tribe. You've got to dance the same dance. The shape of the future is nevertheless clearly discernible. Huge thanks to Paul and Jen for joining me. And I do hope you'll be heading out this weekend to see Tish. Next up, I'm thrilled to be able to share with you a conversation I had with two of the women that created Greta Gerwig's phenomenal Barbie. Production designer Sarah Greenwood and set decorator Katie Spencer joined me for a Women in Film and TV UK panel to talk about the artistic challenges of making Barbie's world come to life. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. I got us both ice cream. Cool. Hi, Barbie. 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 Hi,
And then we get these weird phone calls from LA going, okay, Barbie, Greta. And we go, okay. Uh, I, I, I mean, it was so it was so funny because Mount Etna, we were doing the battle scene at the yeah. end of Serrano, yeah. and it's, it was so cold, and we're in this volcanic rock, and Sarah's saying, I have to somehow get down the mountain and get back to where there's a signal so yeah. I can talk to Greta about yeah. the pink world of Barbie. Yeah, 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 and it was just surreal. You know, it really was surreal, and it frankly was one of the most amazing scripts yeah. uh, that we've ever read. It yeah. is an amazing script be great if they published it as it as it was then because it had no you know it wasn't broken into scenes it was a stream of consciousness she broke the fourth wall she talked in fact you still got the narrator remained in there were pictures in it you know um and so there's a lot to take in and it was a kind of uh it was it was so going back to your question the thing about it was it has been the hardest most intellectual and philosophical challenge to make this film uh, without a doubt you're mm. untangling this thing it is not you know it's not the simple barbie that no it uh, we we always said um, you know is that if it looks simple if it we, we might if it looks like simple and of course it had to be like that then visually simple. visually simple then that's we're kind of on the right path but to to make something visually simple is really complicated mm. you know it's much easier to do uh, a more layered and fuller image, really. Yeah. And also, you're not working from, you're not particularly working from anything that known. You know, unlike say Anna Karenina, where you've got the most amazing book and then you have the most amazing screenplay by Tom Stoppard, which we turned on its head anyway as well. But you know, or Pride and Prejudice, we've got an amazing book, amazing screenplay. You know, and then, I mean, all of these things have, are, are, and they're rooted in a time and a period and a place. Barbie is rooted in, you know, Malibu yeah. in yeah. some corporation's head, you and, know. Yeah, and the, and the, also the difference is with, with Barbie, it's the, only the narrative that you play with the toy. You know, you make the narrative when you're playing with her. And so uh, we may not have been a fan of Barbie or then, then um, because we didn't have a Barbie or a dream house, but Greta Gerwig certainly did. You know, she loved Barbie. Mm. So it was like her her narrative so it was her weird twist on barbie which i think is mm -hmm. really funny and interestingly everybody goes on about you know barbie and you know the perfect barbie land the perfect day that lasts for like the first 12 pages which are credits it's just a run of credits over the perfect day and it starts to go wrong 12 pages in you know mm -hmm. and that's that's there you go. There you have it. It's not bar. It's not you know. Everybody thinks, oh, it's just you know, just a dreamland, you know, and it's but it's not. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Do you guys ever think about dying? When my heart breaks. Some things have been happening that might be related. When my world shakes. Cold shower. Ooh. Falling off my roof. <laughs> And my heels are on the ground. <gasps> so where on earth did you start? And in terms of the conversations that you had with Greta and which part of the design did you start with? So we were over up an exploding yep. volcano. So we came back and so we kind of started having chats in January, February of 2021. So those conversations went on from like January to September when we actually started in proper pre-pre-production. 
and they were she was shooting in America so they were mainly over Zoom we had we had one or two Zoom chats a week for two or three hours I mean long conversations because one thing about Greta is she loves to talk and she's a brilliant talker and she's very clever and she's a great actor so you're rolling all of that and so, so, you know, you may be touching on a bit of Barbie, a bit of, you know, but actually what you're not discussing is specifics, you know, you know, we did get into specifics, but you're actually talking is what, what makes something a doll, you know, what makes something a toy, what is it that, you know, so, and all of those conversations trying to get into what is it? it it's bizarre because through that it was actually, it was it was almost like, what is the essence of humanity? You know, because what is humanity and what is a dog? And, and it's a story of life and death. And, and it is, you know, you know, and mothers and daughters. It's a bigger mm. thing than that. Um, mm. So it was, it was, and what literally they would look like and how, you know, how they wouldn't be jointed. They wouldn't be this. They would be, it was all within the acting yeah. and within the script. So finding your way through that then led to... Obviously, the first thing to do was was dreamland and the dream houses. And so you had to start with that yeah. as a springboard off, really. Yeah. And, and it was kind of like, again, it was about making actually parameters and rules. So we learned, we discovered, you know, obviously, well, now it seems simple. There is no there's no elements in Barbie land. You know, there's no there's no wind, there's no rain, there's no air, there's no water, there's no fire, there's no electricity, there's no food. There's what else isn't there? There's no black, no black, no white, yep. no no chrome, chrome. Uh, no patina, <laughs> no aging. But so there's an awful lot of what isn't in Barbie mm. Land, and of course the dullness, right? What makes them dull? And I think you know what Greta did there with the with Margot and Ryan and the other actors, you know, absolutely stunning because you know it's like you, when they're going for the kiss. Right, you know, there was lots of conversations. It's like, do they walk like that and lean in for a kiss? Yeah. And of course, it stayed in the film. And then when she says, "Well, what do we do now?" and he goes, "Long pause. I'm not really sure." And it's just like, oh my god, that breaks your heart because they're dolls. They mm. they don't know what to do, you know. Um, and I I also think what maybe helped us as well because being British and this iconic American toy. I mean, she's popular enough over here, but over there, she, I mean, as Greta, she did this sizzle reel, Greta, about the film before we started. And, you know, she, she'd worked out that she's the most recognized thing after Coca-Cola around the world, you know, when she was selling wow. this film back to Warner Brothers. So we didn't really know, we, we didn't own a Barbie, we didn't have a dream house. So we were looking at America as well as looking at the dolls. So we were taking the whole thing from, from the 50s when Barbie was invented all the way through to now mm. and trying to get the quintessential Americana yeah. within it. I mean, that was, I mean, it was interesting, you know, because you're dealing with an American icon yeah. here. And, and Greta. And Greta. <laughs> um, you know, in the same way when we did Beauty and the Beast, you're yeah. dealing with the crown jewels of Disney, yeah. you know, and it's like, you know, here you've got this this doll. But in a way, because we didn't have the doll and we came to it, Pretty, it's a pretty blank canvas, mm. so it's taking it all in, learning all about Barbie, and it, it, you know, we weren't, we weren't kind of consumed by, oh, it's got to be this, it's got to be that, and it's kind of like, okay, well, you look at everything dispassionately and think, okay, you know, what are we going to take from, you know, the Barbies, and what are we going to learn about it? Yeah, we sort of settled on mid-century Americana because. One thing that Greta said as well, it, it, she wanted this authentic artificiality, but she wanted things to be beautiful, and she didn't want Barbie Land to be a disappointment. 
to anybody who watched it. They, she wanted that moment when things go right. And that, to, to our view, was a perfect time of how we all feel about America. You know, that sort of mid-century look. Mm. And it has an elegance and a perfection that, that transgresses all years, really. So that was, and the Palm Springs yeah. aesthetic. Yeah. There was a reason why we went, went and we looked at the Palm Springs aesthetic is because literally, you know, Barbie lives in Malibu. Malibu is on the beach. Right, we were doing the beach anyway, and what she, you know, you needed separation. You wanted this her, her to have a whole world, you know. So there isn't Barbie Land in the Mattel Barbie. We're not replicating Barbie, Barbie Dreamhouse. We're not replicating it. We are taking the essence of it for our story, for our film, and so therefore, you know, everybody comes saying, "Oh my God, it's a Dreamhouse." Well, okay, you you put our Dreamhouse next to the real Dreamhouse, and they're not at all the same. That we just we're just cherry picking what is it and one of the important things again which is in this kind of voyage of discovery was that you know when you have when you we did literally we then bought a dream house had it in the office bought barbie dolls and played with them and used to leave them overnight and you come in in the morning and the little elves have been in and played with the barbie Barbie and ken were doing things that they didn't do in the film that's (laughs) That's all the same yeah yeah but anyway so you know but one of the things that we realized very early on is that is the scale and, you know, the fact that she can touch the ceiling. So therefore, you know, the, the dolls are much bigger in the environment than the reality of humans in a room. In the same way, they're much bigger than the car. You know, when you try and put a Barbie doll in a car, they never fit. You know, just, the, you know, the windscreen comes to here. You know, so there's all sorts of things. And, you know, so so it was worked out that it was 20, everything was 23% smaller. We then found out, you know, after we finished filming, that, that Mattel have a name for this, which is called Toyetic. So it's to make things feel like toys. It's just, you know, probably why they've got ridiculously small waists and big heads and all of that. But, you know, it's it's the scale and you're playing with the scale. So so the ceilings are lower and the car is smaller and the wall, you know, the rooms, the rooms are tiny anyway. Yeah. Some things are bigger. Yes. Um, then you play the other way. When you get a Barbie and it's got all the accessories in the box, things that are really small are really big. So lipsticks or toothbrushes, hairbrushes, mm. whatever are big because little fingers are going to lose them straight away, mm. you know. So so there's all these things that we kind of... Worked out as we yeah, went through. Yeah. And it's sort of like Greta also said, we only need to play these, you know, these moments like her at the beginning with the hairbrush and the toothbrush just a couple of times. And then people will take... It's like theatre, like Greta. People will go with you and believe, and believe it. It was a source of great comedy and, and sort of recognition and nostalgia for me as well when I started watching it because it immediately took me back to playing with Barbies and it was very funny how, you know, the, the sizing and everything and how it highlighted it. So I just love that moment where um, Margot's in the shower and she does all that with the shower because there's no water coming out and she said... Yeah. She said she watched all those Radox commercials from the 70s, you know, and it's like how you would mime a shower. Yeah. I mean, you know, she was amazing. She was an amazing at capturing, mm. you know, the essence of Barbie and then giving her humanity. And she was a great producer. Mm-hmm. She was very hands yeah. on. Yeah. Talk to me more about working with her as a producer, because I know, as you say, she was absolutely devoted to this project, didn't she? I mean, she bought it to Greta. You know, mm-hmm. she's responsible for Barbie getting made. There's mm-hmm. no two ways about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and she was fantastic. You know, she was in on all the meetings. She was, you know, uh, very much involved in in kind of conceptual conversations and everything. And we literally, you know, a couple of weeks from shooting, I kind of push her out the door and say, right, 
that's enough. Go and you know, go and go, act. Go and act. Go and, yeah. go and get. Yeah. Go and have a rest before yeah. you start. You know, I mean, she was. She 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 was so good when she was now in the acting stage. Mm. She'd still go and look at the sets being built purely for the joy of it. You know, and so when you when you're in a film and you're in it the whole time and you're producing it, mm. but she wanted to know, and she's she's really bright. Yeah. She's really smart as well. You know, it was interesting having two smart women yeah. at the top. What were the joys of that in particular? Well, you just felt that it was a conversation you knew. It's like an automatically a part of the conversation mm-hmm. and an understanding. And of course, that's shown throughout the film because, you know, we go into the patriarchy, we're going to the Kens. Oh, looks like this beach was a little too much beach for you, Ken. If I wasn't severely injured, I would beat you off right now, Ken. I'll beat you off with you any day, Ken. Hold my ice cream, Ken. All right, Ken, you're on. Let's beat you off. Anyone who wants to beach him off has to beach me off first. I will beach both of you off at the same time. But you don't even know how to beach yourself off. How are you going to beach oh, both of us off? It doesn't make sense. Can? You can beach yourself off. You're going to beach both of us off. Nobody's going to beach anyone off. Mattel were very hands off. Which and I, Which is amazing. And didn't really, they came over when we were just before filming just to. Yeah. I mean, that, to that, that was interesting. I mean, that was a conversation mm. that I had going back to Sicily. First conversation. And I said, Having read the script and seen the script and thought, oh, my goodness, OK, so how much are Mattel involved? And they said, oh, they're completely on board. And I said, so, you know, so when and I'm already knowing that we're not recreating. And I said, mm. so do we have to run the designs past Mattel? Absolutely not. You know, Greta had been with them. They knew what she was doing. They'd read these early drafts and they just said yes, which now knowing more about Mattel and having met them all, is phenomenal the trust that they put in mm. her, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that they were laid pretty bare, you know, and and we, you know, you have these really kind of weird moments when Will Ferrell playing the CEO of Mattel meets the CEO of Mattel, and it's like, oh, this is something really <laughs> cookie going on here, but, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you know, then Mattel came over, and you know, uh, it, that was funny. So. You know, so by then we, we were about three weeks from shooting, but, you know, the, all the props had been made and everything, so it was all laid out. And they came in, and it was like selling something back to them. Do you know what I mean? They're, going, they're all going, ooh, yeah. ooh, look at this. Yeah. We could market this. Yeah. Yeah, this, ooh, this is it, was, it was, it was, del- it you was, you know, we did, we laid them everything out that they could, yeah. they could, like, pick up and play with, really. Yeah. And, of course, they loved it. And we ended up saying, like, well, do you want some stickers? <laughs> You know, to all these executives that were, you know, do you want some stickers? Oh, yes, well, yeah, some stickers. Uh, In the very early days, you know, truth be told, you know, we're on it for six months, you know, unpaid, unsigned, all of that, but we're doing all this work. But it's funny because those times are so critical. You know, it's actually those early conversations. It's like doing your homework before you do your work, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's, it's building that kind of knowledge and... You know, what started as something enormous and almost incomprehensible, you know, it kind of gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And then you begin to understand it and you understand what you're after. And, you know, you can start building, you know, that's when you start building the design. And because you know what you're after, it then becomes almost a pleasure, you know, (laughs) almost a pleasure. Almost a pleasure. pleasure. (laughs) But, you know, what a joy. And, And, you know, working... With, a, with our amazing teams, you know, mm. we are well supported from, you know, around us. We have mm. incredible teams. And, you know, you, you, you end up, and it's just, it was just, a, it just became an absolute joy because 
you know, the laughter and the fun that the cast mm. and the on-set crew were having mm. was something to behold. They just had such a laugh, didn't they? It was just... Yeah, they did. Yeah. They did. I mean, you just couldn't... It just, it just made you... It just made you smile, you know, yeah. because everybody worked together and everybody went into people's different areas, mm-hmm. you know? Very, so, and that, I think, came from the top. Mm-hmm. That came from Greta and Margot, yeah. you know, is that there was this such a collaborate, collaborative feel... Yeah. That there were no barriers put up and it was just a very, very kind of open yeah. and positive conversation. And it's great because the more everybody knows, the better everybody can do their job. And you can see the results on screen, can't you? It really feels like a harmonious film with everyone working together so, so beautifully for a common goal. And um, many, many of us are now big fans of Weird Barbies, so maybe we could talk about her house would you like to give us some insight on that well yes we we all well obviously we all love with barbie from the get-go you know and um and, and you know it's to inhabit her her you know i mean that's a weird thing in a weird film really let's face it but um you know the whole thing about weird barbie is that it's it's you know she's been played with too much you know we know what she's gonna be like and so therefore it's like the house was like a house that had been played with too much it would have been an an original dream house and then it all went kind of cockeyed there isn't a single kind of you know 90 degree corner or anything like that and and the feeling of it was that it kind of felt like um you know the boo radley house in to kill a mockingbird it's like you know oh no we can't, can't look at that and it then or like the feeling of the psycho house actually you know, so it's up on this hill and it's just like, you know, very... But in fact, it's it's a place of great kind sanctuary. of sanctuary for all of them. You know, it's where they go. And of course, there isn't anything to be scared of there. Of course there isn't. Greta described <laughs> it as um, Murakami in a blender and Gaudi in a blender, you know. So, so we knew it had this kind of wildness to it. And then the actors taking it to a another level and Kate McKinnon playing weird Barbie was just a genius wasn't she yeah and I think it was it was uh, the last thing we shot actually was weird Barbie and almost was one of the first things that that we'd worked out but we weren't allowed to talk about we weird didn't Barbie allow ourselves, ourselves in yeah. case we all just talked about weird Barbie all yeah. the time because she's such a compelling character yeah. Yeah. but then you know knowing that it's Kate McKinnon knowing you know what she is like and she's such a sort of you know impro specialist made it even more fun. Hello? Hmm? Humans. We're fine. And Ellen. Come into my weird house. Hi. I'm Weird Barbie. I am in the splits. I have a funky haircut and I smell like basement. Oh my God, I had a weird Barbie. Yeah, you did. You make them weird by playing too hard. It's cool. Shall we talk about Ken and Kendom and uh, the, the changes that we see on screen at that point? This is where Katie is a coup de grace because I couldn't get it, right? I kept thinking it was something more decorative and, you know, like, you know, the, the, he'd change it. He would he would paint it grey or he would, you know, so I was looking at all these, you know, terrible mandens in the 70s and things. Which it kind of is as well. Which it kind of is. But actually, everything is totally surface. And so this is where, you know, Katie cracked it by saying... You know. Said to Greta, right, because it's quite, it's kind of difficult, you know, and there's what's, it was a, first of all, it was a great relief that we could stop making and painting everything because he could bring things from the real world. And that was like, at least we can just get things, right, mm. find things, get things. And saying to Greta, do you mean this ugly? Do you really mean this ugly? Because, you know, these lazy boy, these black leather, these mini fridges. And she said, yes, this ugly. And so having her operation saying, yes, go for it, basically, 
that was the license and the horses and the horses you know <laughs> and you know making the hobby horses and things like that also one of my favorite things is like we put 22 televisions into that set because there's no electricity in barbie land he's brought it back and on their televisions as the same footage of horses in slow motion turning or cantering towards camera or something like that and there's a moment uh that you put so many of these objects into Barbie land that the ugly becomes beautiful. And there's a moment where Ken, and he's quite melancholic, and we, we pull back, and all the, all the horses in the, in the sort of dusk light. And I think it's really beautiful, because mm. there's pathos there as well, which there is with the Kens, mm. as well as humour, as well as basic stupidity. And again, it was one of those things where you just, you just end up with, with, you know, the worst things you could ever imagine yeah. on that set. And actually... The way they just sat on the set, they weren't bedded yeah. in, they just, it's like they'd gone in and gone that, yeah. and that, you know, and just yeah. these, you know, ridiculous, I mean, it's just ridiculous on ridiculousness, you know, and it's kind of, but the, but again, what was brilliant about that was the way, you know, Ryan yeah. and, you know, the other Kens, how they then played with yeah. what was in there, yeah. you know, right. and just, just, you know, that, and I'm sure, you know, all the, the horses, like the, the hobby horses, who all lived within the paddock yeah. of the uh, little tree house, yeah. when they went on the beach, you know, and, and suddenly you've got the cavalry. And, you know, I don't know where that came from. Was that written or did you come up with it? We came up it, with the hobby horses. With the hobby horses. Yeah. So therefore they all became this cavalry yeah. that came over the hill. And Greta, this is just so fantastic. She actually got them doing it. She didn't run the cameras on slow-mo. She got them to do slow-mo acting. And it's just like... And, and then at one point, Greta actually went and said, have I gone too far? <laughs> it's like, oh, God. Well, you yeah. kind of think, is other Kens going to work? Yeah. You know, yeah. is it going to work? And I tell you why, because Ryan is just amazing. Yeah. And he it, it was it, serious, you know, yeah. he, he was certainly Ken enough. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, is, is that, you know, the acting ability of yeah. Margot and Ryan yeah. is what made it work. Hey, Barbie. Yeah. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and planned choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. And it's interesting to hear you both talking about how the actors interact with your designs. And do you think um, in particular in this film that it was more the case partly by the design of it and partly because the actors were so involved and so interested in it? I think not necessarily just on this, but there's quite a lot on this because of the environment told such a story, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think quite often, like uh, the Barbie Land, the dream houses, it was a 360 degree set, which we do a lot if possible, because, you know, from Pride and Prejudice all the way through, like the house in Pride and Prejudice, we, we dress everything. So it enables the director, if you, you know, and it can work out more economically viable. And um, the director and the actors, they have the potential to 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 be free and to do something else which yeah. i think is... i mean it was it's interesting as we talked about this i mean you know I, it wasn't a heavily storyboarded film no. even though greta and mm. rodrigo prieta who's the amazing dop you know very much worked out the shooting style and mm. in fact all of barbie land and the beach was shot off a 75 foot technocrane mm. you know initially you go oh god this great lump in the middle of the set in fact, it was like a ballet. No. You didn't notice it. He was so good. You you forgot it was there. And normally, yeah. you know, everybody's got their head in their hands. Yeah. Of what we were going to do, but it became like, oh, excuse me. Yeah. You just moved around. Yeah. It. it was it was incredible how yeah. how they so they knew mm. how they were going to shoot it, and then it was a, it felt like a very evolving sort of. Even though 
you know, it so it had a style, but it wasn't overly kind of prescriptive, mm. you know, and everybody seemed to know what they were doing. Didn't yeah, they, they? did. Yeah. And that has to come from Greta. And she's very, you know, sort of, well, it's everybody is welcome, you know. Mm. I mean, obviously, to a certain extent, but she was happy to, if she had, you know, if she had videoed something, show it to everybody. Yeah. You know, it's not just like for the lucky few, yeah. because you need everybody to read the script, in my mind, and you need everybody to know what's, be going, a, on. Know what's going on, you know. And I think as well, you know, and it's so funny because it's like the whole thing of the, you know, turning turning it into Kendom, you know, and then you, you, you know, it's like Jacqueline's costumes. I mean, and, and Ivana's hair, you mm. just think, Oh my God, those mullets, yeah. you know, those those <laughs> mini shorts, and you just think, oh, mm. those vests, yeah. you know. But actually, put them all together, and then put them together with the with the stunts and with the movement, mm. with the choreography, mm. with the camera moves, and it can't, and it well, it more than kind of it works, you mm. know. But it's that belief that you have to have, you have yeah. to believe but it, otherwise you're sunk. We were also talking you before about you need these elements of peace as well which yeah. is a moments of quiet, which is why going into the dream ballet, when they do that sort of singing in the rain number, those, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's kind of beautiful. And the moments with, with, um, with Margot and Ruth Handler, you know, when she's making that final choice of what she, I mean, it's beautiful and you need nothing there. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously you, you built and painted great set, but it's just, yeah, um, I mean, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, but that, that dream ballet that came out of the fact that, we didn't have a big enough stage, you know. Originally, the beach was going to be four times the length, and it shrunk, and it shrunk the budget and the, you know, what set stages we had, and it was kind of like this, you know, this final scene on the beach. It's just too long, you know, to live in that one space, and then you know, remembering that we'd been looking at all these incredible films as influences, um, and. We all love singing in the rain, and the you know she's got her white scarf, and and then you think, okay, that's great, that's cheap, and then you know very simple costumes, and then it was like, how do you transition? And then we remember we were watching Greece, you know, when they're in the garage in Greece, and it suddenly goes yeah. in, they all go into white boiler suits, and you know, yeah. and and so that's where that whole stuff, you know, so that was a that was a that was a solution that we came to, you know, almost as we were shooting, mm-hmm, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, we've got to find somewhere else to go because it's just, we're going to fall over ourselves on that small set, you know. That, um, I think that's interesting, the way sometimes practical problems create the best solutions. Yeah. Can we talk about Mattel HQ quickly? Okay, so Mattel, two things from Greta. One is that the boardroom looks like a, a six-year-old girl's pink and fluffy heart. That's the stage directions. Yeah, it has stage directions are fun. Fantastic. And um and the fact that it's got one foot in the real world and one foot in Barbie Land. That they are not they have a knowledge of Barbie Land. Obviously they know mm. it. And so what we wanted to do was, you know, that amazing Bank of America we shot in LA, you know, um but you you go into it and it's almost monochromatic until you hit the boardroom, you know, the the downstairs in the you know the little booths and things, which mm. is after the Jack Tatty playtime. playtime, you know, and you go up and you go along that corridor and you're in that set and and you know Will Ferrell being the CEO is just and so so that was a set build and then outside the window I don't know if anybody noticed but it's a that is a cloth because it was kind of like a hyper 
LA it's your perfect LA background you know so so you know we played with the with the geography we moved the mountains a bit closer we put the, the you know occasionally you get snow on the mountains we had snow on the mountains and the Hollywood sign was definitely pushed in and then downtown we made look like uh, the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz but it was gold but then we then and so you kind of you know and then for a joke, we put in the Warner Brothers Discovery <laughs> building right uh -huh. in the middle. Yeah. We had to get permission to do that, but they allowed us. Will and Will then Will Ferrell's, Ferrell's, and Will Ferrell's house, yeah. He, he said, I live there, I live there. You know, um, and, uh, and yeah, and it was, you know, in the rainbow around the door. There's lots of references to, Wizard, to the Wizard of Oz, you know, Pink Book Road yeah. and all of that. Um, and then on the 17th floor, of is course, Ruth is Ruth Handler's. Um, magical the kitchen. Ghost, the ghost of Ruth Handler yeah. on the 17th floor. Which was a lovely thing to do, a lovely sort of like traditional set with a twist. And, you know, we didn't know anything about Ruth Handler. I didn't know what she did or what she was like or who she was. So that was, there's another film there to be made, I think, but about that, her. But that was fantastic. Yeah. So learning about her, mm. you know, uh, and what she did and the fact that she ran this company mm -hmm. and everything you know was an incredible thing and and the fact that actually you know barbie you know that opening sequence 2001 when when they're bashing the hell out of the little baby dolls oh here we go this is this is ruth handler inventing this doll that is something to look up to yeah i mean it made me i have to say it made me reassess what i thought of barbie, barbie i was yeah. one of those barbie yeah. sort of you know deniers yeah and um you know, of course, you know, they're teaching women, wrongly sometimes, rightly sometimes, that you can be more than just a baby mother, you know, a mm. mother. Yeah. Um, and Ruth Handler, I think, was really quite exceptional in, you know, depending yeah. on who it's a you go to, yeah. she wasn't yeah. really and, quite and exceptional. So, yeah. But certainly, you know, and Mattel, you know, over mm. the years have got it right and got it wrong. Mm. But, you know, I, I think their openness to acknowledging that I think is a really interesting thing. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think we've come away feeling much more benign towards Barbie than we started. Yeah. It's really been um, a joy to hear all about this and I want to go and watch Barbie a fourth time now. It's been such a pleasure to speak to both of you, Sarah and Katie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Goodbye. We haven't played with Barbie since we were like five years old. Oh. No one rests until this doll is back in a box. Humans only have one ending. Get that Barbie! Ideas live forever. Thank you to Sarah and Katie. You're listening to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith, and for this ep, I was joined by producer Jen Corcoran and director Paul Soong on Tish. And I was also joined by Barbie production designer Sarah Greenwood and set decorator Katie Spencer. Tish is being released by Modern Films in the UK and Irish cinemas on 17th of November 2023. If you've not managed to catch Barbie yet, it's available on 4K, Blu-ray, DVD and digital download now. Why not go in for another viewing like me? Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, producer Lydia Scott, audio editor Eliana J, and intern Charlotte Matheson. This episode is in partnership with Modern Films for the release of Tish and Women in Film and TV UK for Barbie. Thank you to our principal partners, Peter Brewer and Vanessa Smith, and to Margaret London. I'm Anna Smith. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon.
can go back to your regular life and forget any of this ever happened. Or you can know the truth about the universe. The first one, the high heel. No, we'll do a redo. You're supposed to want to know.